This sermon, Do You See Him?, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, December 19, 2021, at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Our last Sunday together before the Christmas Day holiday, and I am looking forward to this morning's text. We are going to be taking a break uh, from our study in the book of Acts this Sunday. We'll get back into Acts next Sunday, and Tim will be preaching uh, in, the, in our candlelight service. Tim will be preaching from Isaiah 9. Uh, I love our candlelight service, not just because I, I don't preach, but uh, it's great sitting out there in the middle of, uh, of you all, uh, but what a wonderful time where the gospel will be declared. And what a wonderful opportunity to invite friends and family who have not come yet to know the glorious Savior that we by grace have come to know. Amen? Well, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to limit ourselves this morning to one verse, John 1.14. Would you stand with me? Let's read it together. We'll pray and we will begin. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning knowing that to the natural mind, it bears no fruit. But in the hands of the Spirit, spoken to hearts filled with the Spirit, Your word is life. Your word is transforming. Your word goes forth and bears fruit. And so we ask now that you would fill us freshly with your spirit for the task of being engaged by you through your word. Lord, take the truths represented in in this familiar verse and cause them to Take hold in our hearts. Lord, grant us the gift of illumination that we might understand. Be with us. Work in us. Transform us for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, we do not have a congregational polity around here, uh, but this morning we are going to begin with some congregational participation. In fact, there should be a slide coming up. Can everybody see that? Do you know what that is? Anybody have any idea what that is? That is what is known as a stereogram. Have you you ever done one of these? Uh, I love these. In fact, for as long as I can remember, if I run across these, I could just do them all day long. At times, I've done them so long that I think I'm about to go cross-eyed. But Uh, I wanted to start by encouraging you guys 
to look at this. And if you don't know what a stereogram is, you look at it, you see all the different shapes and colors and objects. But the point is to look at it closely. In essence, to almost look through it so that the 3D image that it represents will appear instead of a bunch of garbled images and colors. So as you're doing that, just, just look through that, focus on it. You're going to feel like you're going cross-eyed. If it helps, as it begins to get blurry, blink your eyes. That's what I do in that, that 3D image. It, it looks like you could reach in and grab it. That 3D image will show up and present a beautiful image. Do you see it? Can you see it? I see people going, no. I see people nodding their heads, yes. Whoever sees it, what do you see? What do you see? You can't see it, can you? You can't see it, right? So whoever was saying, yes, I saw it, unless you're willing to tell us what it is, we know that you can't really see it. Well, I actually knew this probably wouldn't work. <laughs> so that was an exercise in futility. I actually think that, that in order to work, you really need to be 14 to 20 inches away from it. doesn't really work uh, the way we have it set up here. But if you were to do it, if you had it in front of your face, what you would see is an amazing 3D image that pops off the screen at you. And you would see Joseph and Mary, a few cattle in the background. You would see a stable. And you would see at the center of it all, baby Jesus. It's a wonderful, brilliant 3D image, even though you can't see it, of the birth of Christ. Now take that down, otherwise everybody will be trying to do it for the next 45 minutes. I know you couldn't see it, but that's kind of the point this morning. That's how Christmas can be for us if we are not careful. We heard about it this morning, the busyness of the season. So much to do at Christmas time, so many places to be. At Christmas time, so many friends to enjoy, so many traditions to continue on, all good things. And yet, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, Christmas can just be a bunch of noise, a wall, if you will, where we are unable to see through it and see the real and true purpose and glory of Christmas. And our text this morning cuts through that noise. This morning, this morning's sermon, this, this is not about penetrating application questions or memorable discussion points for your community groups. My heart's desire for us all is that in this final week of Christmas, in these final days as we lead up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, 
that the very thing that is printed on this pulpit would, would be how we experience Christmas this year. If you've never seen it, it says, Preacher, we wish to see Jesus. That's what we see in our text this morning, and that is my one desire, is I have one more opportunity to speak to you before Christmas Day. I have broken up our text into two parts. We're going to see two things in John 1.14, a familiar text, no doubt, for most. But this morning, I want us to really see the glory of what John writes here in verse 14. So we're going to look, first of all, at the incomprehensible truth of Christmas. And then second, the unmatchable joy of Christmas. So the incomprehensible truth of Christmas, it's always a risk when a pastor uses the word incomprehensible in his point, uh, because the whole idea of that word is that, yeah, you're really not going to get us to a full understanding about this, are you? No, I am not. None of us will. In fact, for those who believe, we will spend eternity going into the depths of this mystery. But notice how John begins in verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. At the heart of Christmas is the most profound mystery known to mankind, the incarnation. What John says here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You notice John doesn't give a birth narrative like the other gospel writers. John is all about the identity of Jesus. The book of John has seven I am sayings. He, he wants people. He draws a focus to who Jesus came proclaiming to be. And here he begins with the most profound expression of the reality of Jesus' identity Known in scripture, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I, I love what A.W. Tozier says. He says, John's words lift us into the mystery of God and into the circles of deity far beyond the pursuit of man. Realms so high, lofty, and noble that it is impossible to us to follow to its conclusion. Indeed, we will not follow these words to their ultimate conclusion this morning, but we can be marveled by them because what Mr. Tozer says is true. If we take the time to slow down in a very busy season and truly contemplate Christmas, our meditation will soon hit a brick wall. Our meditation will soon leave us in mental wonder and awe of the mystery of Christmas, which is the mystery of mysteries, really this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, to feel the weight of those words, we need to go back up to verse 1. Notice how John began his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God. John says, the word, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, was God. The word was God. Then you'll notice he says in our passage in verse 14 that that word, that same word that he refers to in verse 1, that he declares as God, that same word, he says, became flesh. The word became flesh. And so John's point is that this Jesus born in a humble manger, this baby that we celebrate at Christmas, the one who has come is God himself. Not merely an ambassador, but God himself, the one who created all things according to the very beginning of your Bible. The one who set the moon and the stars into place according to Psalm 8. The one whose greatness according to Psalm 145 is unsearchable, incomprehensive, unfathomable. The one, according to Isaiah 40, for whom there is no comparison in all of creation. That one, the eternal one, the almighty one, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word flesh is important here. Uh, the, here, it, it, it's, it's the crudest word in the Greek for human existence because it really it represents our human nature. And so the point here in, in John's choice of, of words, he, he is saying that Jesus was, was no mere apparition. It's not as if he appeared to be man. Some of you are familiar with, with the heresy of Docetism, that, that's where, where Jesus appeared to be, but wasn't truly. No, John picks this word intentionally to remind us that God indeed came and took on flesh. God who is omnipresent, invisible, and eternal spent nine months in a messy womb that he designed and created. God, who has never progressed or grown, but has always been infinite in his entire being, learned to walk and talk and speak. He grew in wisdom and stature, according to Luke 2. God, who is self-existent, transcendent, over creation, he experienced the temptations, sufferings, and injustices of a fallen world. If you cut him, if you were to drive a spike through his wrist, if you were to take a spear and foist it into his side, he would bleed. If 
He didn't eat. He got weak and he felt hungry. If he didn't drink, he became thirsty and may even say, I thirst. When he was sad, when a dear friend would pass away, he wept. The creator, without ceasing to be the creator, joined himself to the creature, becoming like us in every way, except one that the writer of Hebrews is very clear on. He was without sin. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, deity and flesh, divine and human nature, fully God and fully man. That's what John is saying here. John introduces his gospel story by by telling the world that God became flesh. He was born a man and he dwelt among us. This is not a clever 3D eye trick. John is not putting forth a verbal stereogram. It's the mystery of mysteries. We sang about it this morning. Emmanuel, God with us. God taking up residence with us. God choosing to tabernacle. That's what that word dwell means. To exist, to live amongst us. God condescended condescended to us took on our being he entered the flow of fallen humanity even becoming like us that's the incomprehensible truth of Christmas At the heart of Christmas is God condescending and dwelling with his people. But this incomprehensible truth of Christmas is, that that, that seems, how do we grasp that? How, How do we get our hands around that? How can that be? Fully God, fully man? I've read a lot on that. There are big differences on that. What does that mean and how are we to understand that? I can't, we, even the smart guys can't get their brains around it. But this incomprehensible truth of Christmas is at the same time the sole source of intimate and unmatched joy for those he came to say. That's our second point this morning. The unmatchable joy of Christmas. Let's look at the entirety of the verse again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says this, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
Listen, if, if you're like uh, uh, Dawn and I on Christmas morning, especially when we had kids, we sit around a tree barely awake, <laughs> just pumping coffee into our system, right? The little ones loved Christmas blend, yes, Christmas blend. Pounding down the, pounding down the hot coffee. If you're me, hopefully with a good gooey cinnamon roll, wake you up feverishly unwrapping gifts, watching the joy in your children. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with gifts and Christmas morning traditions, unless that becomes Christmas for us, right? But when you think about it, unwrapping a gift is exactly what Christmas is about. You see, the implication of the incomprehensible incarnation is, as John says, something has been revealed to us and seen by us like never before. And John says that something here is God's glory. The birth of Jesus was an unwrapping, if you will, of God's glory as never seen before by Mankind. We know that Moses got a glimpse of God's glory on Mount Sinai. As he put him in the cleft of the rock and he saw his backside. We know that God's people witnessed God's glory as it filled the temple in the day of Solomon. We know that the high priest got a glimpse of God's glory like no one else once a year as he entered the Holy of Holies. But in Jesus, John says the glory of God has been revealed in this little baby. The glory of God has been revealed like never before. This is what John means when he writes, the glory, notice what he says, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. The, the point of that word only is, that, is not that Jesus The point here is not that he was created, but that Jesus is unique. He is the only son of God. He is unique as the eternal word. He shares equality with God as the second person of the Holy Trinity, as Philippians 2 says. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Jesus is exactly like his father in all of his attributes. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And, and, and the glory, that glory is revealed in a way in which it has never been revealed before. On that humble night in Bethlehem, the noisy town of Bethlehem, the place where the creator and sustainer and king of the universes according to his infinite wisdom and established before the foundations of the world that in that place and in that way he would take
take on flesh and dwell among man. Bethlehem had no idea who had just entered their city. The ones who turned them away, no place to stay, had no idea who they were not making room for. Of course, that glory revealed in the manger would be further unwrapped as the purposes of this baby would unfold. You'll notice what John says at the end of verse 14. His glory was revealed in that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he was full of grace and truth. What does that mean? Well, let's look at full of grace first. God became flesh to be gracious to sinners. This this condescension was the height of grace. He, He became flesh to be gracious to sinners, and Jesus embodied fully that grace. Think about Christmas. Think about Christmas, how Christmas could have been different. God could have still come, taken on flesh, and dwelt with man. But imagine, imagine if he came to sinners like you and I, guilty as charged, deserving the full wrath of God's everlasting and unrelenting judgment. Imagine if God came in the flesh, not full of grace, but as judge and executioner, exacting holy justice on the spot, which he would have been holy and perfectly just in doing. I love that that John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn guilty sinners, but to save undeserving sinners. That's my paraphrase. But if you, we all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But we rarely pay attention to verse 17, which says that Jesus did not come to condemn, but he came to save. He came to be gracious. He came to pour out his grace on undeserving sinners. God took on flesh. He became like those who deserved his wrath so that he could pour out his mercy and love on them. In fact, notice verse 9. John says just before our verse, he says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Then listen to this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came into this world, a light shining into darkness, to give sinners the right to become children of God. Do you see what's happening on Christmas morning? Light has come into the world. Grace has arrived. This is the gospel in, in John's own words. That's grace. And when we understand it, it's grace that brings unmatchable joy. But let me ask you a question. How can, how can a holy God, how can a holy God be gracious towards sinners? Remember Exodus, I think it's 34. The Lord, the Lord, he's steadfast in love. He's faithful. But he will not let sin go undealt with. How does God remain faithful to himself, to his own character, and being gracious to undeserving sinners? How can a holy God save sinners and still be God? Well, this is the point of full of truth. Jesus came, God in flesh, full of grace. He came bringing grace and full of truth. John, notice, John, John uses the word truth there, and that word he uses actually 25 times in his gospel. And here it's, it's not a reference to a teaching, but a reality that is occurring in Jesus. Up to this point in history, God's people knew truth, right? But they only knew it in part. They knew it in part through prophecies. They knew it in part through types. They knew it in part through shadows of their worship and their sacrificial system. Of course, we know that all of these things pointed to Jesus, whose sacrifice alone could do what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, right? Make us inwardly clean. That, that's, that's the point of Hebrews chapter eight through 10. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, God's people knew truth in part. God worked through, through types. God worked through shadows. But it was all pointing to this one who would come full of grace and full of truth. And so Christmas time, we see, and we see in the Gospels that this, this manger leads to a cross where the, gospel, where, where the gracious work of salvation would be accomplished. God in flesh put himself forward as a propitiation, the writer of Hebrews says. And Paul says in Romans, how can God be the just justifier of sinners? Answer, by putting forth Jesus as a propitiation. Romans 3. 
In other words, a propitiation is just a fancy word to say that, that what Jesus did on the cross, that this baby being born in Bethlehem, he would hang on a cross covered, bearing our sin and absorbing our judgment and in doing so, turning away the wrath of God, turning away the judgment that we deserved in a way that was acceptable to God the Father. That's what it means that Jesus was put forth as a propitiation so that, all would, so that all that would believe in his name as we have been seen in the book of Acts, all who would repent of their sins and draw near by grace, that they, they would receive life. In other words, by coming in the flesh and offering himself up as a sin sacrifice, paying for the sins of all who would be God called God's people. God was being true to himself. He was being faithful, not only to these Old Testament promises, but above all things, to his own character. I love how John Piper says it. I should have just read this. God is gracious to us and true to himself. Therefore, when his son comes, he is full of grace and truth. When Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment, not us. No wonder we sing joy to the world. God came in flesh in the form of Jesus the Christ. And took on our sin, bore our punishment, so that we would only know grace. The innocent baby dies for the guilty sinner. God, as we, we sang it earlier, God, God condescended, once unknown, now calls us. And I would submit to you instead of friend, look at verse 12. God now calls us children. Children. Beloved children. Some have went on the record of saying that that is immoral. Others say it's foolishness, but the Bible calls it grace and truth in its fullest, fulfilling 
the purpose of history. How do you wrap that? How do you stick that in the stocking? How do you put that under a tree? What store could you possibly buy that from? You can't. The gospel is a mystery that is revealed in your heart. Notice what John says in between, in the middle of verse 14. He says that that we've seen his glory. Now, certainly John had seen Jesus in his person. He had seen Jesus as he hung on a cross, the height of God's glory. But to most of the people he's writing to, they had not. This gospel was written 15, 20, 25, 30 years after the birth and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So obviously, most of those who believed in him, who were reading this letter, they had not seen Jesus. They had heard of him in the message of the gospel. And just as John would later write in this very gospel, blessed is he who does not see, but believes. And that's okay for us today because you don't have to see Jesus physically. We live in a show-me world, right? We live in a world that we need science to prove everything out or else I'm not going to believe. Show me the formula. You, you guys, you gals and guys who are uh, engineers, you, you understand that. Show me the formula. But this is a scene, it's a spiritual scene that John talks about. A beholding in the heart. It's, it's a mystery that goes beyond the eyes and the intellect. And it's bound for the heart. It's a mystery that's bound for the heart. And my question this morning is, do you see him? I know you couldn't see him on the stereogram. But do you see him this morning? And will you respond to him this morning? Maybe for some of you, for the very first time, we're seeing Jesus in a way where your heart is convicted, your heart is pierced, as you have heard that this baby would come, God in flesh, and make himself your, make himself your atonement. Take on what only you deserved. Bear your sin and absorb the punishment for your sin. Do you see him as he is? The savior of the world. God, Emmanuel, God with us, full of grace and truth. And will you repent this morning? God mercifully calls all to come to him, to lay your burden down, to turn away from your sin, and to see Jesus in your heart. 
That's the call. That's the gospel call for every human being. And we know, we know that it's an act of mercy that any of us could ever see. But do you see him this morning? I implore you, let this Christmas be the Christmas that for the first time you see the baby born in the manger as your Lord and Savior, God in flesh, come full of grace and truth to give you hope and an unmatchable joy. For those of us who have believed, do you see him freshly this morning? Can you relate to to all the noise? You couldn't see the, the brilliant 3D image because all the images, you couldn't see through them. Is that, is that you this morning? Rick humbly just, just acknowledged before the body, that's me today. It's been me all week. And in some way, I, I have to believe it's all of us. Do you see him freshly this morning? Do you see how after his death and resurrection and ascension, Though you can no longer see Jesus physically, do you see his spirit who dwells in your hearts? Do you see him this Christmas? Do you see him in the precious gospel that you preach to yourself every day? Do you see him on the pages of scripture that you give yourself to every day? Do you see him in the transformed lives of the people in this room with you? Do you see him? Do you see him in the transformed life of your spouse or your children? Do you see him in your own transformed life? That's my desire, and I believe it's the desire of all of us this morning. So as we go into this final week of Christmas, that we, above all things, would see him, the one who came in flesh, came full of grace and truth, that we might have life. Listen. Wherever this Christmas day finds you, I know Christmas is not easy or enjoyable for everyone. It can be a season of loneliness. Maybe that's where you're at. It can be a season where you really feel the pain of the pocketbook. Maybe you come into this Christmas season broke. You see everybody around you spending money. Maybe you come into this Christmas season with uncertainty about your future. Maybe you come into this Christmas season hurting physically. You think about Christmas Day and friends and family coming over and you wonder, how am I going to get through that day? I can barely get through a normal day. My body just hurts and aches. Or maybe... 
you come into this Christmas day and your heart is just hard. You're doubting the Lord. Maybe you're raising your fist at him for something that's happened in this last year. Maybe you're coming in this Christmas season just discouraged and you would tell me, Pastor, I don't have the time to tell you all the things that I'm discouraged about. And frankly, I'm not looking forward to the new year. I don't see anything changing. Listen, wherever you are this Christmas, in the power of the Spirit, look hard through the noise. Look hard through the noise and see Christmas. See, see the incarnate God has come to save you and to bring you to himself. That Revelation 21 says we will experience his presence in a way that we have never experienced it before. No more suffering, no more tears, no more sin. God dwelling with his people, God and his children in the presence of the risen Christ, the one who was born into this world, the word who was with God, the word who was God. That's where Christmas is going. Because in a few months, we're going to celebrate Easter. This baby would die on a cross for your sins, but the grave would not hold him down. He would be raised from the dead, vindicating the righteous one. And if Jesus' statement, it is finished, God's statement of raising Christ said, it is acceptable. It is enough. So wherever you are this Christmas, look hard through the noise. See the incarnate God who has come to save you, bringing you joy beyond your wildest imagination and hope, not just in this life, not just for this week, not just for Christmas Day, but the life to come where we will all be with our God and Savior fully, finally, and forever.